Good day, Journey. Nice to see all of you. What if we did Christmas differently? Advent Conspiracy is an invitation to do just that and some people and some stuff out in the lobby or on that big Christmas tree right in the middle uh, can help you get around that. Raise your hand if you've gotten your tickets already for Christmas at the Commons. Yep, some of you, and we got a ways to go. Could I challenge you, don't just get yourself a ticket. Like, Don't just think about getting your family here, but think about who you're going to bring with you. Who are the guests that you're going to have on your arm and bring them to Christmas at the Commons? It's what we call a prime inviting opportunity. It's lots of the reason we do Christmas the way we do around here is so that we as a community can use it with people in our lives who need the message of Christ. So use it. Don't waste this opportunity or, as the case may be, these four opportunities. Get around those, christmasatthecommons.com, to get tickets for you and your guests. You heard April and Chris talk about we will not be gathering, how we will not be gathering on Christmas Day next Sunday. So if you show up uh, at uh, 11.05, which is when you usually show up for the 11 o'clock, we still won't be here. Whether you come at 11 or 11.05 or 11.10 or 11.27, we won't be here. And I want you to know it isn't because we're lazy, okay? It isn't because I don't want to get up and preach on Christmas Day. It isn't because we're one of those newfangled emergent churches that doesn't care about Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It's about, very simply, our volunteer teams. We're not meeting on Christmas Day because there uh, are numerous, countless people around here who serve about 51 weekends a year, week in and week out, put serving towels over their arms, carry quite heavy loads for us as a community, and we decided for their sake not to meet on Christmas Day. And so we're asking, inviting, challenging our teams to work their hearts out for our four Christmas at the Commons celebrations. And then we're saying, look, take Sunday, celebrate the birth of Jesus however you want with your families, and just set down your serving responsibility that you carry so well. So will you be our advocate on that, please? Uh, We've caught much flack about this in the past, and we'll probably catch flack for it again. People saying, you don't care about Jesus, thus you're not meeting. And to that I say, look, we're meeting four times to celebrate Jesus' birth. Four, four, four times. That's a lot. Christmas is a big deal to us. We're just not meeting on Christmas itself. So be our advocate around that, please. It is all about our volunteer teams and their sacrifice for us all year long. Not long after you heard uh, April and Chris talk about this too, Uh, Chris and his Santa hat isn't he cute, by the way, Uh, very shortly after we decided not to meet on Christmas Day, some service organizations from the Gallatin Valley called and said, hey, could we use the commons on Christmas Day to do this event for homeless children, homeless kids in our valley? We said, yes, absolutely, like, what do you need? By the way, did you know that between Bozeman and Belgrade, there's 90 homeless kids, 90 homeless kids, and uh, there are people who know who they are and where they live and stay and so, and they're inviting them here for a Christmas Day party. It's fantastic, and so from noon until early evening, they're going to be in here, all kinds of games, activities, snacks, gifts, a fantastic Christmas dinner, and they said, hey, while you're at it, would you invite the Journey Church community to help us host this event? We could use volunteers to help us staff this, which for some people would be a fantastic way to spend Christmas Day, wouldn't it? So if you want to get around that, you can write on that info card in the chair pocket in front of you, drop it in an offering bag uh, when it comes by in a little bit, 
and just say, hey, I want to serve around that homeless kids thing on Christmas Day, call our office uh, tomorrow, drop an email to info at journeyweb.net, and we'll connect you uh, with the people who are putting that thing together. That will be a bunch of fun. So we're in this series that we call Adore, and to adore means to love greatly. In the case of we who follow Jesus Christ, uh, that means that we love God greatly, doesn't it? To adore means we love God greatly. We make space, we take time in our hearts and our lives to celebrate and to worship and to revel in God, especially during the Christmas season because, look, it's the savior of the world. It's the Messiah. He's come. He was born so that we could know God and live with him forever and ever starting right here and right now. We started this Adore conversation by talking about how the angels adore God and all that we could do to imitate them so that we could more fully adore God. Last week we looked at the shepherds, saw how they adore God so that we could do the same. And I just want to say to the whole of the Journey family and community, way to go. I'm hearing little snapshots here and there about how lots and lots of us are pressing the reset button on Christmas. We're doing Christmas differently. We're picking some things up that are new and worshipful for us. We're setting some things down that were, frankly, just hectic and complicating to our worship. And so I just want to say, way to go. Keep that up. You got a week to go. And I just want this to be the most adoration-filled week for you and for your family for us as a church. So keep that up. Uh, If you're keeping track, if we've talked about angels and shepherds, who's left then? Wise men. That's exactly right. Three of you are wise men or women and got that one right. Matthew chapter 2 in your Bible. Let's dive in and we'll get to the wise men story from the text. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be above my head, hanging in the air. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And the reign of King Herod, just so you know, was a reign of terror. King Herod is an evil, evil, evil man. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose, and we have come to worship him. This next statement is absolutely true. King Herod was deeply disturbed. He absolutely was deeply disturbed, especially when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests, teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Liar. He's a liar. That is not why he wants to know that. After this interview, or shall we call it an interrogation, the wise men went their way. And the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, note that. They entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. 
And this is a super cool deal. Not every church in America has this privilege, but we actually have some video footage, actual video footage from the wise men's journey. Someone had a camera phone there, and so watch this. So what kind of gifts are you going to bring the Messiah? Gift? Gift. Gifts. Like presents? Yeah. I thought you guys said grits. No, we did not say grits. Why would, why would we say grits? I don't know. We have a lot of grits now. Because I brought a lot. So where are you guys getting them? Well, um, Punjab over there in the bushes, who's really taking his time, um, got him gold, so he's going to give the baby some gold. Um, I decided on frankincense, so I'm going to give the baby the rest of my frankincense. I figured that that would be a really nice, nice gift for him. Dude... Dude, not again, not again. Dude, I mixed it with my myrrh and it was amazing, okay? I don't want to hear it. I told you not to touch my stuff. Well, I touched your stuff. You know what, it's not even a big deal. I'm just going to try to find some more frankincense. I have no idea where I'm going to find it in the middle of nowhere. And you can just give the baby the rest of your myrrh. Obviously, Punjab, the trust fund baby that he is, is going to upshow us with his gold. So, what are you looking at? You know what really tickles my whiskers? What is that? The, that star alignment really looks like a big cup. I'm gonna name it the big cup. No, it looks a little bit more like a dipper. Like a dipper to me. Genius. Yeah. Uh, but that's the star we should be worried about. So Wait, not that one. That is the moon. Oh, of course. So we're just gonna go this way. Punjab, it's about time. Seriously? You know, it's about time. If you're new around Journey, uh, we're, we're a little offbeat. It's a little offbeat. And these wise men, kind of like in that actual video, they're an intriguing bunch, aren't they? From what scholars can gather, the Magi, as they're sometimes referred to, they came from the Persian Empire, which was a great distance east of Israel. The Magi, or the wise men's job in Persia, was to teach and instruct the kings. That was what they were about. That's what they did. That famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings, uh, the wise men were not themselves kings. They worked for kings. But they were just wise men, and the kings were kings, and the wise men worked for the kings. And they carried out a very important duty in the kingdom of Persia. They were the ones who offered all of the sacrifices in the temples. No religious sacrifices were allowed without at least one of the magi being present. Wise men were skilled in philosophy, medicine, natural sciences, and the study of the stars. They worshipped fire and nature. And they thought by bowing down, by bending their knees to nature, that they might be able to somehow discover the meaning to all of life. Now the magi, the wise men, they were highly respected by the king of Persia, by the entire society, Persian society. They were extremely wealthy. They wanted for not a single material thing. Now, of particular interest to the Magi was the path of the stars and the planets. They paid very close attention. Their view was that the celestial bodies represented the unchanging order of the entire universe. The Magi then would have held to this opinion that the stars, the planets, were the key to the meaning of life. Many Magi felt strongly that a person's entire destiny was determined by the star under which they were born. What do we call that today? Astrology. It's exactly right. Now, we 
Don't know exactly what happened. But picture this. One particular night, the Magi are paying attention to the sky, the night sky, and they were witness to this extraordinary occurrence. All of a sudden, this very brilliant star appeared that they had never even seen before. And that would have been a stunning thing to the Magi. That meant that the supposed unchanging order of the skies had all of a sudden, on a dime, been broken. The Magi knew, they interpreted, that the appearance of the star must indeed be the signal that something significant, very significant, was unfolding. Now picture them being all abuzz because of this new star appearing. They would have set about even deeper research, deeper study of faraway peoples and lands in particular, attempting to track down the meaning. What does this mean, this new star? And then one day, they hit the jackpot. They discovered that over in Israel, there was the expectation of a great king. Even some Persian writings spoke of a Jewish prophet foretelling the coming of the Messiah, their anointed one from God, the one who would come not just to set Israel free, but to set all people free. And the Magi set about studying more and more, especially the writings of the Jewish prophets, and they learned that the child, the child, would be born of a virgin. He would be the light to all the world. He would be the wonderful counselor. He would actually be mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And that God would present a special sign to announce the arrival of the great king. And so the Magi set about their calculations and they determined that this new star had risen squarely over the region of Judea in the land in the nation of Israel. Surely, They thought this was the sign that the prophets had spoken of for so long. The Magi took all that data in and they did the only thing that they knew to do. They made preparations and then they set out on a months long journey to follow the star to the place that it indicated to them. And that would not have been an easy trip. It wasn't like you or I taking a little trip to Great Falls or something. Rough trails and blistering hot day. Days, frigid nights would have been the rule of the entire trip. Yet there was the star, brilliant, white, shining, guiding them moment by moment. And after some number of months of travel, and if you've been around this very much at all, you'd know that there's a ton of speculation about just how long it took for the wise men to travel to see Jesus. There's a whole bunch of speculation around where in the world Jesus was when they did arrive. We notice in the Matthew 2 text that they go to a home, right? They didn't go to the stable where Jesus was born. They actually visit him in a home. And then there's a ton of speculation around how many magi there even were, right? There's the famous song, We Three Kings, right? And so we just assume that it's three. There's three gifts. The song says there's three, so it must be three. The Catholics actually say that they have the three bodies of the three wise men buried somewhere. They're skeletons now, incidentally, but they say that they have the skeletons buried somewhere. And other scholars say, no, it had to have been much more than three. It was probably a dozen, some even offer as many as two dozen magi that would have set out and made that trip. But you set aside all of that speculation, what we know, what we absolutely know, is that eventually, at some point in time, some period of time after Jesus was born, the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, and they set about finding Jesus the one who they called the king of the Jews. And these wise men, they reveal for us three truths. And folks, if we'll imitate these truths, if we'll set these truths into our hearts and lives, we will be about loving God greatly, not just at Christmas time, but any time of the year. Number one is this. Adoring God like the wise men adored God 
compels us to do the extraordinary. It compels us to do the extraordinary, just like the wise men did. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what the Bible says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. And so you ask yourself this question, what prompts smart people, like really smart people, so smart as a matter of fact that the Bible actually calls them for all of the ages wise men. What prompts smart people to leave the comfort of their homes, the comfort of their very cushy employment, and go on this crazy dangerous journey like the one the wise men set out on to find the king of the Jews? What prompts very smart people to do something that anybody would have called crazy. Just imagine with me for a moment the wise man's neighbor's reactions to this trip, right? There's the wise man. He's out in his front yard, and he's packing up his camel with his supplies for this trip. The neighbor comes out his or her front door, and they holler over the fence to Punjab. Where are you going? Where are you going, Punjab? And Punjab says, well, I think we're going to Israel. Israel, interesting, How far away is Israel? Well, we don't exactly know how far away it is. Well, how long, Punjab, are you going to be gone? You need me to pick up your newspaper for you or so? That's a great question. We don't know how long we're going to be gone. And the neighbor's standing there going like, I thought you were a wise man. Now I think you're like a wise guy. You don't know much, the neighbor's thinking. But Abraham's neighbors would have thought the exact same thing, wouldn't they? When Abraham was setting out, he went without knowing where God was leading him to some land they just called the promised land. Abraham's neighbors would have been going like, what what are you doing? You're, You're crazy. Think about Noah's neighbors for a moment. Poor Noah. You're building a what because it's gonna what? What? Some of Jesus' disciples even. Neighbors looking on saying, you're leaving your fishing nets to go fishing for men? That's crazy. That's crazy. But I want to say this. That ain't crazy. What is that? That's faith. That ain't crazy. That is faith. The same thing that prompted the wise men was the same thing that prompted Abraham, the same thing that prompted Noah, the same thing that prompted the disciples, the same thing that prompted countless millions of Christ followers to do extraordinary things for God since the very beginning of time. Faith. These wise men, they weren't just setting out across the desert on some romance trip. They weren't setting out across the desert because they thought they were going to enrich themselves on this trip. It wasn't about them getting more wealthy. They set out on this trip across the desert to find the newborn king of the Jews because they held out hope that the meaning of life wasn't just contained in the movement of the planet, planets and the stars. Like really, how hopeful is that anyway? They actually held out hope that the meaning of life might be found in the one who made the planet, planets and the stars, and the one who holds them in their places, the one who causes their movement. The wise men, they stepped out in great faith. They set out on this extraordinary journey to find Jesus because of faith, and they were willing to risk every single thing to find him. What about you? Are you willing to risk as much to step out in great faith, to do something extraordinary for the kingdom of God, with God, because 
of God. And I don't want anybody to ever think that you have to do extraordinary things stepping out in great faith because you somehow owe God. It doesn't work that way. That isn't why the wise men set out on their journey to find Jesus. It shouldn't be why you or I ever set out to do extraordinary things with God, for God, for the kingdom of God, because we have this sense of obligation or so. Uh Uh-uh. Our desire to step out in great faith to do extraordinary things with and for God should come from this place that says, God, you are so amazing. Everything you've done for me is so amazing. I can't do anything but honor you by stepping out, out of my comfort zone, out of what I know, to go and do what you're asking me to do, something extraordinary. Hebrews eleven six in the Bible says that it is impossible to please God without what? faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, which means that the life that you and I live as followers of Jesus Christ ought to frankly look extraordinary to our friends and neighbors and the people looking on because we're actually stepping out. We're not just talking about our faith, not just talking about loving God. We're actually stepping out and we're doing something about it and other people are caused to look on and say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Oh my gosh, that's extraordinary. You're living this out. You're not just talking about it. You're living it out. And when we live by faith in God, our lives will be anything but ho-hum. But how many people do you know, how many Christians do you know, who are just living sort of ho-hum kinds of lives? Way too many. They're bored, frankly. But living by faith in God, it ought to be extraordinary. People ought to be looking on saying, I'm blown away by that. Doing extraordinary things because we're compelled by faith in God is what it looks like to love God greatly, to adore God with our whole lives. The wise men, they got that. They absolutely got that. They did that, frankly. They didn't just talk about it, they did it. Point number two, adoring God like the wise men adored God causes us to be dogged. Love that word. Dogged in our pursuit of him, just like the wise men were. Matthew 2, 2. Some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now picture this. You're a person living in Israel. You've got this strangely dressed, these strangely dressed people approaching you saying, where is the newborn king of the Jews? It would have sounded utterly silly to you as a resident of Israel. You would have been going like, who in the world are these guys? Like, nice hat. And what kind of a question is that? Get out of here. But they persisted. They were dogged. They just kept asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. And get this, they asked so many people so many times that news of this question traveled all the way to King Herod. How many thousands of people do you think they had to ask before the news would have traveled all the way to King Herod? A ton. And it would have been really easy for the wise men to get really, really discouraged It would have been really easy for them to be entirely dissuaded, turned off from their search for Jesus. They're like, nobody knows what in the heck we're talking about. But they weren't dissuaded. They were dogged. They persisted. They were relentless in their pursuit of him. And we hear that and we're like, okay, that's cool. 
the wise men were dogged in their pursuit of Jesus a couple thousand years ago. Good for them. So what for us? These days, you and I, us, being dogged in our pursuit of God, here's what it looks like. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Buckle in. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those, these are the words of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me give you a little insight into me and my life on this verse. I'm working through this message. I'm working through these passages this week, like dozens and dozens of hours on this. And the Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 verse was like a freight train to my forehead. Because it caused me to ask myself this question. Hopkins, how often do you really hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? How often do you really hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? And it was like a stop me dead in my tracks kind of question. And I answered that question like this. It was like a me and Jesus and the Holy Spirit over my little office. And here's my answer. Not often enough. Maybe you identify. Not often enough. Now see, the wise men a couple of thousand years ago, they were persistent. They were dogged in their pursuit of Jesus. But these days, lots and lots of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we aren't anything close to dogged in our pursuit of Jesus. We're pretty comfortable, actually. And a guy named John Piper, who's a brilliant man, he captures our problem about this hunger and thirst for righteousness deal with a very simple statement. He says, our lack of hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness isn't because God is somehow unsavory to us. It's because we keep ourselves so stuffed with other things. Can you identify How many of us at some point in our lives, we prayed a prayer, maybe in a gathering like this, and we asked Jesus to come into our life and forgive us of our sins. We want to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell, right? And so we do that. We we transact that business with God, and then we say, oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm full. Oh, God, I, I, I got it. I'm on it. Got it covered. I'm good. Sort of set the cruise control and just sort of sit back and... Go with the flow, like a twig on the shoulders of a mighty stream. But that's not even close to what it is to doggedly pursue Jesus Christ. Pursuing Jesus Christ actually means that you, me, us, we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. It means we're more concerned with what God thinks of us and our life than we are about what anyone, and I mean anyone else, thinks of us and our life. Hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God looks like examining where and in what you place your trust in, really. Make sure we say that we put our trust in God, but but really, when the chips are down, what are we really trusting in? What are we really believing in? Who is our true master? What are our real treasures? What do we really spend our life and our energy on? Are we just chasing the world and everything in the world? 
Are we just pleasing our flesh and everything that we want? Or do we spend our life and our energy bringing the kingdom of God on earth just as it is in heaven? Doggedly pursuing Jesus Christ means hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness looks like the deepest craving you can ever imagine for God's integrity, for God's virtue, for God's purity, God's purity, to reign in your heart and in your life. Hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, watch this, means that you hate your sin more than you hate anything else in the world. You utterly hate your sin. Because you see, righteousness and sin are completely incompatible. You cannot love both. And some of us, we try to do that sometimes. Some of us sitting right here, we might be trying to do that very thing. Oh, I love God so much. I love singing these songs. I love going to church. And I love the warm, fuzzy around all of that. Cool. And we also... Some of us really love this sin and we just won't put it down and we're just engaged up to our eyeballs in it. But that is not ever going to work. Hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God starts with the deepest inner longing to have your sin entirely cleansed from your heart, replaced with the righteousness of God, not your righteousness, not just you on your best behavior. But God's righteousness. You're doggedly pursuing Jesus just like the wise men did when you're hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God with your entire being. Everything about you desires to live and to walk the way God directs you to live and walk. You're not forging your own trail. You're not making your own way. You're not running up ahead. You're just following step by step by step by step following. The wise men adored God by doggedly pursuing Jesus. Third point, and we'll land here today. Adoring God like the wise men adored God moves us, watch this, to give God our very best. Not the leftovers. To give God our very best. To sacrifice for him and his kingdom like the wise men did. Look at verse 11 of Matthew 2. They, that's the wise men, the magi, they entered the house. Notice it's the house. Jesus was at a house, not in the stable, not in the manger anymore. He's in a house now. And they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. That's why they made the trip, so that they could bow down and worship him. And they opened their treasure chest. They carted treasure chests on this multi-month-long trip all across the desert, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They love Jesus greatly. They adore him. They worship him with everything that they have, and they worship him very sacrificially. They brought gifts, not grits. They bought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, aren't those interesting gifts to give a little kid? Here's some gold bullion. Have fun with that. Here's some frankincense. Go play with that. And some myrrh. Myrrh. It's fun to say. Myrrh, isn't it? And there's a lot of people, they make much of the gifts 
that the wise men gave to Jesus. They say that the gold is a gift that is certainly fit for a king. After all, Jesus is the king of kings, right? And then they make much of the symbolism of the frankincense. They say, well, this is a gift that is fit for the son of God, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, frankincense was really just dried tree sap. It was used as incense in the public worship of God. They give that to Jesus. And then myrrh is a fragrant perfume that was used to what? Embalm and preserve the dead. It's an interesting one, right? And they say this myrrh thing is an interesting gift for Jesus, very appropriate because what? Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. He's going to die. I don't necessarily think that there's much to the symbolism of those gifts necessarily. But I do know that there is a whole bunch more to the adoration of God than just gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's this, the wise men got it. Adoring God always every time involves sacrifice. Adoring God always every single time involves sacrifice. Think about the sacrifice of these wise men. Certainly these were expensive gifts, absolutely, that they gave him. But they sacrificed entirely to take this trip to see Jesus. All their comfort, all their security, their cushy jobs, and so, all to worship him, all to adore him, all to give him their very best. So what's it look like for us to adore God via our sacrifice? First Chronicles 21, 24. I'm going to shift gears on you here and take you down an Old Testament road for a few moments. First Chronicles 21, 24. To sacrifice for God and his kingdom looks like this. But King David replied to Arana, I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. Now, that's taken from the end of a quite long Old Testament narrative, so let me set it up a bit. Against the very command of God himself, King David, who was reigning, uh, reigning over Israel at the time of First Chronicles, King David violates the command of God, and he decides to take a census. He wants to count how many people there are inside of the kingdom of Israel. God did not want King David to know how many people there were in his kingdom, but David bucked God's orders and did it anyway. God got ticked off and punished Israel because of David's disobedience. Imagine that. 70,000 people died because David disobeyed God. And he took a census when God didn't want him to. There was frankly more death on the way. If you read the story, you'll see this. There's more death on the way via the angel of death. But God relented. He pulled back. He spared Israel from further suffering. When God stopped the death angel sort of mid-act of killing people, the angel happened to be standing near the threshing floor of this guy named Arana. Now, a threshing floor is a place where harvested grain would have been processed. They just call it a threshing floor. God directs that David is supposed to go to that place where the angel of death stopped and build an altar to him on that threshing floor. So David, he sets out, he's on his way to do that, but he realizes that in order to build the altar on that threshing floor, David's going to have to take the thing completely over. Arana is not going to anymore be able to thresh grain in that place. He's going to have to build a new threshing floor somewhere else. He's out of business once this altar goes in. So David realizes this, he goes up to arrange for the construction of the altar. Arana realizes what's happening, he realizes what's at stake, and he's like, David, just have this threshing floor. Just take it, please. I don't want anything to do with this, let's just stop the killing, get the altar built, I'll help you have everything. Take it, please. And David says, "Uh uh-uh. I cannot give a thing to God that has cost me nothing. 
I cannot give a thing to God that has cost me nothing. I cannot give something to God that I have not personally sacrificed for. I have to have skin in that game. And the wise men, they got that principle. To adore God like the wise men did requires us giving God our very best, sacrificing of our very best, and that's costly. It costs money, it costs time, it costs personal investment. Sacrifice always, every time is expensive, isn't it? That's nothing new, you know that. And sacrifice is much more than a token gift or some half-hearted effort. It's more than just a tip to God. True sacrifice to God means that the one who gives is actually affected. Now, we can talk all day long about being willing to give and sort of have having generous thoughts and so, but when the willingness to sacrifice stops short, it isn't adoration on the order of the wise men. It's not sacrificial in the way that Christ sacrificed himself for you and for me and for us. And so let me ask you, how is your sacrificial giving to God these days? Does your checkbook register declare that your giving to God is actually impacting and affecting the way that you live? Candidly, if it's not, if it doesn't say that, it isn't sacrifice, which means that it isn't your best. Which likely means that you're just giving God sort of a tip, an obligatory nod. Not your best. That isn't what the wise men did. Let me talk to you about your calendar, your iCal, your daytime, or whatever it is you use. Does your calendar declare that your use of time is affecting the way you live? Are you sacrificing the best time possible in your life to serve him, to bring his kingdom, to even spend time with him? Or are you just sort of tagging it all in the end? Yeah, if I have a little leftover time today, I'll get to that. Sacrifice involves... Not just our money, it involves our time as well. Adoration on the order of the wise men requires sacrifice every single time. I want to invite you just to take your stuff and set it aside and just get still and quiet with God and give you some space to process some things we're talking about and then I'm going to press in with you on a few more things that I think God has for us today. So just get quiet with him and I'll speak into this in just a moment. heads bowed and with your eyes closed, will you just let me ask you, are you adoring God like the wise men did this Christmas time? When you hear their story, when you see what they did, when you see what they were about, when you hear what they were up to, does your adoration of God this Christmas time, does it measure up? 
And it isn't like a guilt trip kind of question. It's just an evaluative question, honestly. The follow-up to that is, okay, what do I got to do so that my adoration, my worship is on par with that of the wise men? For example, are you stepping out in great faith? And are you about extraordinary things for God, for the bringing of his kingdom like the wise men were and did? Are people looking on your life, your faith journey, and are they saying, man, that's crazy. Are they looking at you like they looked at Noah? Or would you say your life is just pretty ho-hum? Another day, another dollar, go to work, go home. I mean, And if life for you is looking pretty ho-hum, will you just listen in very closely to God? And will you ask him the question, God, how are you nudging me out of my comfort zone to do something that you and people around me might call extraordinary? I'll bet he's got something for you. Are you pursuing Jesus as doggedly, as relentlessly as the wise men did? Are you persisting in your pursuit of him? Or you just have your faith in cruise, on cruise control, Sailing along. Yeah, God, I'm good. Full up on everything else but God. Are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God? Really? Are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God? Settling for nothing less? answer to that question is absolutely I'm all about it way to go keep that up if your answer is like my answer like not enough what changes for you what looks different because you're hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God What's it look like for you to hate your sin more than you hate anything else in the world? And then how are you sacrificing for God like the wise men did? Would you say that your giving to God of your financial resources is truly sacrificial or is it just sort of a token tip to him? When you honestly step back and you look at your checkbook register, is your giving really, truly affecting the way that you live? Sacrificial giving means the answer to that question is yes. How about your time? Are you sacrificial with your time? Or is your use of time for God and his kingdom just kind of a token add-on after the fact? 
maybe I'll get to it kind of a thing. And church, here's what's true. What God desires from us more than anything else is our hearts. He wants our hearts, the core of our being. He wants our affection and our attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Which is the very reason he sent Jesus in the first place on that first Christmas. Because he loves us. And Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice, didn't he? He was the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb of God. And he spilled his blood. He gave his life so that we might be set free to the life that God intended for us from the very beginning of time. He did that for you. And you can stop running today. You can stop rebelling today. Maybe you've been the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter for way too long. You can come home today. And in an instant, God will wash you clean in that shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's the desire, the deepest desire of your heart today, you can do that. You can step into relationship with God and you can do that by praying with me a prayer that goes like this. God, I'm a sinner and I need, I require Jesus to pay the price for my sin. God, with all of my heart, I say thank you. Thank you for taking my place. Here I am, all of me. Wash me, make me new by the power, Jesus, of your death, burial, and resurrection. I am yours, God, and I love you. And if you're stepping into faith in Christ today, that is the single biggest decision of your life nothing, and I mean nothing, carries more weight than that does. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask you to just declare it. And I'm going to ask you to declare it to me and to God right now. Nobody's looking around this room except me. But if you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to say, here I am, all of me, will you be so bold as to slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now and just say, yep, That's my decision today. Just make sure I catch your eye. You can do that. Now there, yes, there, and there, absolutely, yes. To my left, yes. Don't let me miss you. Yeah, yes. God, we don't want to just be comfortable in our faith. Well, God, we long that you would look on our lives and that you say, well done. Well done. God, we long to make your heart proud. We 
want to do that by stepping out in great faith, by doggedly pursuing you, and by sacrificing of everything that we have and everything that we are, because you're so worth it. Compel us, please, God, to adore you in the way the wise men did. Not just at Christmas time, all year long. that everything about our lives would be as worship to you.